from Mark chapter 11 on through the rest of the Gospel of Mark, the focus is on the last week of the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here we come to the beginning of a series, the second conflict that he has with the religious leaders, but the second in terms of the questions that they pose to him in order to discredit the Lord. Here in Mark chapter 12, verse 13, our scripture reading will be through verse 17. Mark writes, Then they sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are a truthful, you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay, or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were amazed at him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our God in heaven, we give you thanks once again for your precious word, which is truth. And we pray, God, that you would once again open the eyes of our hearts, that we might see great and mighty things from thy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Back in the 1980s, there was an IRS research officer in Washington. His name was John Slazagi, and he had seen a number of random audits, enough random audits to know that some taxpayers were, were incorrectly claiming dependents for the sake of exemptions. And sometimes it was a genuine mistake. Somebody would claim perhaps they were a a uh, divorced couple, and both would claim the child as an exemption. But sometimes the claims were fraudulent, such as if you claim a child whose name is Fluffy. Turned out, probably a pet. Well, Salagi decided that perhaps the most efficient way would be to have taxpayers require them to put down the social security number of their child. But that idea actually didn't fly through the agency. A few years later, though, Congress was starting to clamor for more revenue from taxes. And so Slalagi's idea was dug up, and it was rushed forward. It was put into law for the tax year of 1986. And when the returns started coming in in April, he recalls, he and his bosses were simply shocked that seven million dependents suddenly vanished from the tax rolls. The amount that the government generated just from requiring social security numbers amounted to something like $3 billion in additional revenue. You know, many people don't like to pay taxes, 
Taxes are a source of complaints. People will go to whatever lengths to avoid paying taxes, and even if it means lying on your tax return. In this particular passage this morning, the question that is posed before Jesus is a question about taxes, whether it is right to pay, in this case, the poll tax. Now, as I mentioned to you earlier on in the introduction, we we're in the last week of Jesus. Earlier in the week on Monday, Jesus had ridden into Jerusalem on a colt. Hailed by tens of thousands of people waving palm branches, throwing their coats onto the floor before him in submission, a symbol of, of submission to him, hailing him as the Messiah, their idea of a Messiah, their idea of a Messiah who would overthrow Rome. Whereas Jesus came into Jerusalem in the last week of his life, not to be a political ruler, but to be a ruler of hearts by dying on the cross for the sins of people. And he came riding in on Monday, and on Tuesday we saw that he went into the temple area, in the court of the Gentiles, a large court in which the Pharisees and the Sadducees and other religious leaders had already set up the whole area, franchised out all of these booths where there were money changers and sellers of goods and others who were simply milking the people and turned the temple into a business. He was right there, stopping what they were doing, overturning the money changers because they were taking advantage of the Jews, and he clashed with the religious leaders right in their own backyard. The previous confrontation with the religious leaders in 1127 was the first of a series of conflicts that we will see. And here we will see individuals, representatives of the Sanhedrin, and the Sanhedrin was the ruling body of the Jews, composed of 70 leaders plus one, the high priest, 71. And the parties were the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes. And in the coming weeks, we will see the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the scribes each bring to Jesus a question with the motive of discrediting him before the people. The Pharisees will question him on taxation, which we will look at today. The Sadducees will question him on the resurrection, which they themselves didn't believe in. And then the scribes will come with a subject of interpretation of the law. Each of these groups will come head-to-head -head with Jesus in a debate, trying to discredit Jesus. Each of these groups will bring a question, and they will fail miserably. Today, the enemies of Jesus will come in this particular passage, which, is in, which was a trap, an entrapment, in order that he might be discredited or arrested. The enemies come, verse 13. They sent some of the Pharisees and Herodians to him, it says, in order to trap him in a statement. Now, the Jews are going to come. The Jewish leaders are going to come again and again and again after Jesus. They have hated him for a long, long time. And now that he has come in the Passover and overturned the tables of the money changers, he has become the center of their focus and their desire is to kill him. Now we have two parties here, the Pharisees and the Herodians, and they could not be more diametrically different. Theologically and politically, they were very different. The Pharisees, they were sticklers for the law of God. They were the legalists. They were the ones who held tightly, not only to the rabbinic law, but all of the laws that the rabbis had taught. They were concerned about God's law. They loved Israel. They were outwardly religious. 
The Herodians, on the other hand, that second party that this verse tells us about, the Herodians were hardly religious. They didn't care about breaking the law of God or the rabbinic laws. They loved Rome. They loved Rome. They were concerned about the law of the land, not the law of God. And they were very political. And so here you had two diametrically opposed parties, politically and theologically, and it was strange to have them together. They're strange bedfellows. And here you have these two because, why? They both saw Jesus as a threat. Now the Jews, the Jews knew that Rome was not going to crucify somebody based upon religious or theological grounds. I mean, Rome sort of gave the people a little bit of freedom when it came to these things, but Rome was concerned if it was a political question, if it was a question that we perhaps would see as divisive there because Jesus was in the middle of this, middle of this place in which Rome attacks the people. Rome was concerned about the taxes, and Rome would have no problem coming in in order that their rule, their control, and their money would not be abated. So, this is the question that they asked. They asked him this question in an entrapment. They came, verse 14, and said, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one, for you are not partial in any way, but teach the way of God and truth. Now, what they're doing here is they are flattering Jesus. In their insincerity, they are flattering Jesus, trying to draw him into their trap. You know they did not believe this. They did not believe Jesus at all. They didn't believe he was telling the truth. But here they say, you are truthful. You teach the way of God and truth. And the reality was, we knew from the passages before, that they hated Jesus. They did not believe him. And what was so convoluted, even as you read this particular statement, was the hypocrisy that just is face in front of them. You say, they say to them, hey, you defer to no one. You are not partial in any way. Or in the English Standard Version, it says, you do not care about anyone's appearances, for you are not swayed by appearances. And yet they're flattering Jesus and at the same time saying to Jesus, you don't care about flattery. It would be like saying, oh Jesus, you are so wise. Everything you say is true. We've never met anyone like you who can answer all of our questions so intelligently, so eloquently. Everything you say is correct and you never give in to anyone's flattery no matter how magnanimous it is. It is nauseating just to read their statement, and at face value, you realize they have a major hypocritical question. And they pose the question right after that, and this is the question. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? Now, what is their hope? What is their hope here? If Jesus were to say, don't pay, well, the people will like that because the people didn't like paying taxes. But the Herodians who loved Rome, who were politically motivated, who wanted to be in the grace of Rome, would not like that. And they'd have no problem reporting Jesus to the Roman authorities, and the Roman authorities would come, and then they would arrest Jesus, and the problem solved. On the other hand, if Jesus says, you do pay, then he would lose credibility with the people. 
because the people hated to pay taxes, especially to Rome. And so they would be able to arrest Jesus, haul him away, and get rid of him quietly. So that was their ploy. Now, the people had to pay all sorts of taxes in biblical times. They had to pay taxes, and this particular tax, this particular tax was an egregious tax that really, really they hated. I mean, they had to pay taxes upon their land, upon a road. They had to pay goods and services tax. They had to pay income tax or whatever. This particular tax, Rome had imposed upon their person. That is why they hated it. Each person had to pay annually one denarii for every person. So if you have six people in your family, that's six denarii. One denarii per year per person. One denarii was equal to the equivalent of one day's wage. It would be the one day's wage of a soldier back then. It would be equivalent to a day's wage per person. Now, you think to yourself, well, that's not very much, is it? Is it really on one 365th of your income, one day's wage? The reason why they hated the poll tax was because, not just the amount, but what it communicated. It communicated and it implied that Caesar owned you. Caesar owned you and you had to pay this tax. It was a tax upon the person. They saw themselves as God's people, not Rome's people. And that is why they hated it so much. In fact, they hated it so much. 25 years before the time of Christ, before this actual incident occurred, there was a man named Judas. There was a man named Judas who had founded a sect of Judaism called the Zealots. And the Zealots were the sort of the terrorists of their day. They hated Rome and they were willing to kill in order to get what they wanted. They would slip in and out of the shadows. They would, uh, you know, come up behind a Roman soldier and kill him and then, and then slink back into the darkness. They had a, 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 they had a revolt on. They had no problem in terms of revolting against Rome. And so when Judas founded the sect of Judaism, he led a revolt against Rome because Rome had wanted to conduct a census in relationship to the poll tax. They wanted to count the number of people and that's going to be how much money they could gain. And so they were very familiar with the poll tax that Rome had imposed upon the people. And even though that revolt was crushed, the resentment from that, from Rome's desire to tax their person was an explosive issue among the people. And you can be sure when the religious leaders, when the, Pharisees, uh, when the Pharisees and the Herodians came and they asked this question of Jesus, that all ears would perk up of all the Jews that would be within earshot. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians had no doubt concocted this particular question to catch Jesus. And it says in the text, their desire was to entrap him in a statement. Their hope was that Jesus would be entrapped in a no-win situation no matter how he answered. So how did he answer? Verse 15. But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. Well, Jesus knew right off 
They probably didn't have one handy. They had to look around because Jews just hated. They refused to carry them around because they were considered idols. Here you have a picture of Caesar. Caesar considered himself God. And if you carried around this little idol in your pocket or whatever, it would be the breaking of the second commandment in, in, in Exodus 20 verse 4. But here Jesus answers them masterfully, answers their question by saying what? Whose, whose likeness is on this? An inscription is in this. And they said Caesar's. And Jesus says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. They were amazed. Now the word render means to repay something that is owed. You owe something to somebody, you repay it. That's what Jesus is saying. You repay what is owed to Caesar, you also repay what is owed to God. It is right to pay taxes. It is right to give to God. The payment of taxes was just one of the issues that people faced when it came to the submission, this overarching theme of what they are to do in relationship to government. So I'd like you to turn your Bibles to the book of Romans, the book of Romans, and we'll be looking at Romans chapter 13 in relationship specifically to taxes. And Paul writes here in the, gospel, in, the, in the book of Romans to the people, Romans chapter 13, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 7, which elucidates our relationship to the government. Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. The Bible tells us, Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves." For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Therefore, it is necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. Verse 6, For because of this you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. Render to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due. Custom to whom custom. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. This is a key passage in the New Testament that tells us of our obligations as well as our relationship to the government. Christians and their relationship to the government. And it is very clear, the very first verse tells us that between us and the governing authorities, whatever that governing authority is, we are to submit. Without exception, each person is to submit themselves to the government. Christians are to be model citizens. 
obedient to the laws of the land. They are to follow those laws. They are to follow due process. They are to follow the rules laid down by the authorities above us. These include whatever, their zoning laws, their city ordinances, the traffic laws, etc. We are to follow the law of the land. We're not to be rebellious. We're not to be obstinate. We're to be citizens whom even non-Christians would be able to respect because we submit to the government. Now, the Bible gives us one exception, one exception, that there is a time when we are not to obey the government, and that is when the government requires that we do things that are against the law of God. When the government asks us directly to do something that is against the law of God, then we are required to obey God. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the book of Daniel, they were faced with a dilemma in which Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had built a golden image. And they, he was at, they asked him to bow down to this golden image and to worship this golden image. And this was their response to the king, the king of Babylon, who was the reign. Babylon was the reigning power at that time. To the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, it says in Daniel 3.16, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. Because the threat was, if you don't bow down to this image, you're going to be cast into a fiery furnace and you're going to burn up. It says, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. They followed God's law, which was not to worship any other god. The Apostle Peter faced the same thing when he was asked by the Jewish rulers in Acts chapter 5. He had been preaching and then arrested. He was told not to preach the gospel. And in Acts chapter 5 verse 29 he says, But we must obey God rather than men. When we are asked by the government or other authority to do something that will violate the word of God, then we, as the Apostle Peter said, we must obey God rather than men. Other than that, we are to submit. We are to submit to the government. That's what verse 1 tells us in Romans chapter 13. Because God has established all governments. That's what it says in verse 1. God has established all governments. Whether we like them or not, whether we agree with them or not, God has established all governments. God established Pharaoh in the book of Exodus when his people his people were enslaved in Egypt. God established Pharaoh for a particular reason. And that reason was that God would bring himself glory even through Pharaoh. The Bible tells us in verse 2 of Romans 13, 2, that resisting government authority is resisting God. Resisting government authority is resisting God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. This whole idea of submission to governing authorities even broadened by the Apostle Peter. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2. A few books over, 
After the book of Hebrews, we find the book of 1 Peter. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Submit yourselves, it says, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. It doesn't say, well, submit only when you agree with them. It doesn't say submit only when, they like, when you like what they are doing. I remember many years ago when I was serving on the board, a missions board, serving for a number of years, and we would receive applications for, uh, from missionaries who desired to join the organization that I was representing. And they had area directors because there would be uh, uh, two or three hundred missionaries, and there was area directors around various countries. And one of the countries in which this application came in, this application came from a missionary who wanted to uh, join the mission agency and it was in Africa. And one of the questions on the questionnaire, which was typical, which was, it said something like, do you agree to submit to the country director in your area? And the missionary wrote something rather curious. They said, yes, when I agree with them. Well, the problem with that is that it's not really submission, is it? When you agree with them, you're just doing what you already agree they are going to do. Submission is found so frequently, so frequently in the Bible, in various areas. Children obey your parents, in the family relationships, in the employer-employee relationships, in the government relationships. And God repeats this theme that we are to submit the authorities above us. Why? Because we as sinners are so prone not to submit. Especially in a democratic country, we, we've learned to push back, protest, fight back, rather than submit. And in Peter's day, you realize when Peter writes this statement in 1 Peter 2, submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, Peter is writing to Christians who are being persecuted by the governing authorities. These Christians are scattered abroad. In 1 Peter, he writes to those who are the diaspora, those who have fled because they are being persecuted, because the government is after them, because people are after their lives. And he tells them, you submit to these human institutions. He doesn't say organize a protest or fight back. He doesn't write to them and say that. In Peter's day, this was not a theocratic, Christian-friendly government. That is whom Peter is writing to. And the same, too. You recall we just looked at Romans chapter 13. In Romans chapter 13, it says, submit to the government, right? But you know what, Paul? Paul was writing to believers. And who was the world power at that time? It was also Rome. And you knew, even as a Christian, if you were sitting back there, that part of the things that you would pay for taxes to Rome would go to support some of the buildings that would be built for the worship of Caesar, for the immorality of many of the Roman leaders, for wars that I'm sure they did not care for. All of these things, and yet they're called to submit, to pay their taxes. 
Back in Romans chapter 13, Romans chapter 13, it says in the passage, therefore it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. And then it says, for because of this, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. And it says, render, which means to pay back what is owed. To pay back what is owed to all what is due them. Tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. We're to be model citizens to pay taxes because they go to support our police. They go to support our fire agencies. They go to support all sorts of things, roads, etc. And we're to show honor, to show respect to those who serve in government authorities. And all, all authority, as it says in First Peter, we're called to submit. Not only because of the fear of punishment, but because of our conscience. You know, some Christians, they object to paying taxes for various reasons. They say, well, uh, look, our government mismanages money. They, call, they, they support this cause that I don't agree with. Look at them squander that. I don't agree with that pork barreling that they're doing without that. And that's where my money is going. They use it to fund things that I don't like. They even use it for the detriment of their own people. Can you imagine? Same situation, probably even worse in Rome. When people would pay their taxes to see a temple go up in the worship of Caesar for a God-fearing Jew, but yet Paul tells them, you pay your taxes. The term taxes here, by the way, refers to all types of taxes. It is not just the taxes that we like or the taxes that are federal income taxes. They, there was all sorts of taxes. You know, it includes everything. Your levies, your, your property, your sales tax, your federal income tax, your utility tax, your phone tax, your goods and service tax, whatever it is. You pay your taxes. Render unto Caesar what is due or owed to Caesar. We are to pay taxes even to bad governments that we might not like. We're also to give government workers honor and give government workers respect. I remember meeting one Christian. I was on the East Coast. This was probably 20 years ago, 25 years ago. 25 years ago, probably, I was candidating a particular church, and somebody on that particular board was a, uh, a Christian, and he was an uh, IRS corporate auditor. And, uh, you know, if you own your own business and you get a call and an IRS corporate auditor comes in, well, you know, it's not like they're the most welcome person that, you know, they, you would want to see. And frankly speaking, he would tell me about how they often would not show him much respect. And one time while auditing a particular business, you know, they, they're, they're usually on, on site and they give him a, a desk or something like that. Well, they put him in this little drippy closet space, this stuffy little closet that had hardly any room to work in. We're to show our government workers respect, even when paying taxes. The late Pastor Ray Stedman writes about his own attitude about paying taxes, quote, don't be forever be grumbling about the taxes that you have to pay. I have had to learn some lessons on this myself. The first time I had to pay an income tax was a few years ago. This was many years ago. My income had been so low for a long time, I didn't have to pay any taxes as a pastor. But gradually it caught up and I finally had to pay. I remember how I resented it. In fact, when I sent my tax form in, I addressed it to the Infernal Revenue Service. 
They never answered, although they did accept the money. <laughs> the next year, I had improved my attitude a little bit. I addressed it to the Eternal Revenue Service. But I have repented from all those sins, and now I hope to pay my taxes cheerfully. Christians are to pay their taxes because we are to render unto Caesar what we owe to render the things that are Caesar's. So pay your taxes with a good attitude, without complaining. The second part of Jesus' instruction is that we are to render or pay back to God the things that belong to God. And this has to do with giving to God. Malachi 3.8 is a very well-known passage. It says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. When we do not give to God what is due to God, we rob God. And many times we can rationalize with the same reasons that some choose not to pay taxes. Well, I don't like that project they're involved with. I disagree with that decision. Oh, they don't need it. Oh, the food was terrible after church last week. Yet God calls us to be givers in his kingdom for his purposes. So let's look at that in 2 Corinthians. Turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, a key passage in relationship to our own attitude when we give to the things of the Lord, the causes of the Lord, to further the Lord's kingdom. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6. The Apostle Paul writes, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he who scatters abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgivings to God. For the ministry of this service is not only full supply, fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. The Bible tells us and casts this in the principle of sowing and reaping. And Paul uses this imagery of a farmer who is sowing seed. And the principle is very, very, very simple. If a farmer were to go out to his field and thriftily cast out just a few seeds here and there, everywhere, his crop is going to be small. But the farmer who sows bountifully, he will receive bountifully. And the Bible promises the same thing. The principle applies to our own generosity towards God. Luke chapter 6 verse 38 tells us, Give and it will be given to you. They will pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken over, running over, for by your standard of measure it will be measured in return. 
In your giving to God, God will bless you back. It may not be materially, but it will be in many different ways in which you can never outgive God. You can never outgive God. And the principle is repeated here. Be assured when you give generously to God, when you render unto God the things that belong to God, God will bless you in return. For who you are and what you have, God has supplied more than you need. Why? So that you may give. And when we give, we always give a little bit of our selfishness away every time. Because giving is transformational, and God loves a cheerful giver. There's a, past, there's a pastor who wrote in Leadership Journal and entitled, in a titled article called Transforming Scrooge, and he talks about how the Lord had to teach him about what it meant to be a cheerful giver, but it didn't happen here in the United States. It happened when he was on a trip with his wife, Gail, to West Africa, and this is what he writes. On the first Sunday of our visit, we joined a large crowd of desperately poor Christians for worship. As we neared the church, I noticed that almost every person was carrying something. Some hoisted cages of noisy chickens. Others carried baskets of yams. And still others toted bags of eggs or bowls of cassava paste. Why are they bringing all that stuff, I asked one of our hosts. Watch, she said. Almost every person in that African congregation brought something. A chicken, basket of yams, a bowl of cassava plate. I saw that giving, whether yams or dollars, is not optional for Christ's followers. Soon after the worship began, the moment came when everyone stood and poured into the aisles singing and clapping and even shouting. And the people began moving forward, each in turn, bringing what he had brought to a space out in front. Then I got it, he writes. This was West African offering time. The chickens would help others get a tiny farm business started. The yams and the eggs could be given and sold in the marketplace to help the needy. And the cassava plate would guarantee that someone who was hungry could eat. I was captivated. I'd never seen a joyful offering before. Obviously, my keep my money under the table policy or radar policy would not have worked in West African church. Those African believers, although they never knew it, had moved me. I began to understand that giving, whether yams or dollars, was not an option for Christ's followers. Rather, it was an indication of the direction and the tenor of one's whole life. As God's people, we are called to submit to the authorities that are above us. We're to give unto our government and taxes what is due and owed to them. And we're to give to God what is due and render unto him what we owe him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are grateful for you and your word have declared you have blessed us far more than we need. And Father, I pray that you would be honored by the direction of our heart, 
by the inclination of our own desire. We know, O oh God, it's a heart that loves you above all else, a heart that desires to follow you that you want, not the amount, not the possessions, but God, it's simply an expression of our heart. So I pray that our hearts might be right with you, that you, O oh God, would be honored as we pay our taxes, that you would be honored as we give to you, that you would be honored. In Jesus' name.